Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning. I know that uh, with the time change, with cold weather and with rain, you had three opportunities and three excuses to not be here this morning. And so thank you for, for being here and joining with us. It is, it is still important and good to be together and to gather together as the people of God and the house of God to praise our King and to speak His, his glory and speak His praises and sing together and hear His word together. Uh, as we begin our service, I want to point your attention to just a few announcements in the bulletin. Uh, tonight, we have our rising, our student ministry. So from 5 to 6.30 tonight at the Fellowship Hall, if you have preschool through high school students, or whether you are a preschool through high school student, or whether you have grandkids that are preschool through high school students, uh, we are meeting tonight from 5 to 6.30. Uh, our younger ones are going to continue through their, their study of the events leading up to Easter, our high school students will be continuing through our question and answer catechisms as we discuss doctrine and, and different truths of scripture. Uh, you'll see as you leave this morning on the stairs going up on this side going up up to the balcony. You will see a craft of sorts that our, our young ones did last Sunday. Uh, so last Sunday our, our young ones learned the story of Jesus washing the disciples feet. And it's a, a great story in John 13. It's a, a wonderful picture of the humility and the, the servitude of Jesus. But ultimately, what we taught the children and what we need to learn from John 13, that is that in order for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty. And, and so Jessica and Michael led our, our young ones by painting their feet and allowing them to walk across uh, this, this paper that you'll see here. And, and by walking across, the paint starts out really thick, and often, in, as you'll see, some very thick spots. Uh, but as they walk, the paint gets thinner, and it walks towards towards the cross. And then Jessica washed the the feet of the the feet the feet of the kids and and cleaned up the paint, and it was it was good. So check that out on your way out. We'll do something else tonight, and and have that for you to, to see again. Next week, if you would like to come and just be a part and, and see what we're doing tonight, you are more than welcome. We would love to have have extra hands and have people come and, and be a part of what we're doing at Rising. Uh, with Rising on your way out today is the second Sunday of the month, and so that means that we have second Sunday sweets for you. Uh, so at the end of service, our young ones will be at the back passing out and, and giving out uh, sweets and baked goods and different things. Some are left over from our fundraiser last night, and some have been made this week. The money that you give in support of these donations goes to helping our Sunday nights, uh, paying for food costs and craft costs and anything that, that is needed for those, those Sunday evenings. So any support is, is welcome. I think last month when we did this, for the, the one Sunday we did it in, today's March, so February, uh, we raised, correct me if I'm wrong, $140? About $150. Uh, so from, from last month's second Sunday suite. So thank you for that. And, and we're, we're using that, that money well, and we'll do this again this month and, and going forward. Uh, also this week, we have uh, Tuesday, our Young at Heart meets at 11 a.m. at the Fellowship Hall. They'll have a, a lunch and a meeting. Choir practice at 7 on Wednesday, and then Thursday we have growth group at 6.30. If you're not a part of growth group and would like to, to be a part, or maybe you're just curious and interested in what it is, come, come hang out with us on Thursday night. We're going through John 14 right now, and... And looking at the, the upper room discourse together. So you are more than welcome to come and, and be a part. Are there any other announcements this morning?
Any other announcements this morning? Well, as we begin our worship service this morning, I want to read to you from, I know typically we read from the Psalms as we begin. This morning I want to uh, mix things up a little bit and read to you from the, the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, uh, the writer is giving us an encouragement for why we gather and the, the purpose, the, the reason why it's important that we gather together in worship and gather as the body of Christ. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather together for this purpose, to encourage one another to love and good works. We gather together to draw near to the throne of grace, having hearts sprinkled, having bodies cleansed, all because Christ our Savior has died and has risen again. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to begin our worship service. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that even on a cold, wet, uh, what feels like an earlier morning, God, you are here with us and that we have a a dry, warm place to gather together for your worship. So, Father, help us to do just that. By your Spirit, may we draw near. By the sacrifice of Christ, may, may you hear us. And by the praise and the worship and the proclamation of your gospel, may you receive glory and honor and praise this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn this morning is hymn number 502. It is Be Thou My Vision. Will you stand with me and sing?
Sunday as we gather, we recite and say together the Apostles' Creed. It is uh, printed, if you need it, and laminated in the front of your hymnal uh, for you to, to have and, and say it aloud with us. But the reason we say this Apostles' Creed is because this reminds us what is truth. This reminds us what God's Word teaches us, and it reminds us what it is that we believe. And so, church, I ask you this morning, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. time, Paige is going to lead our children. So if our children want to come forward for our children's story. Okay, so a tree, when you plant a seed that 
supposed to have a crop of vegetable or fruit. It, it, it has fruit. Hudson, did you have something different to say? The same, the same thing? Okay, exactly the same. So, okay, how do people, so am I supposed to be planted in the ground so that I can grow apples on my body? Yeah. So how do we... It's like, um, we get, is it like forgetting, start forgetting your, like, being selected and then your directions is growing? Probably a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that. Um, we can talk more about that. So we can, all right, so there are crops, there are trees and plants that have that grow fruits and vegetables. And you know what kind of plant that is based on the vegetable or fruit that you see, right? So if you see an apple hanging on a tree, you know that it's an an apple tree, right? Or if you see tomatoes on a vine, bush, what, you know that it's a tomato plant, right? Or, and so forth. All the different kinds of fruits and everything that you see. So, we also know that plants can get sick, right? Do plants, plants sometimes get sick, just like we get sick. And then their fruits and vegetables are not good to eat, or they don't produce good vegetables, right? They're good for us to eat. So, the Bible says, that we are like plants and do the same thing. That our flesh, our nature, is to produce bad fruit, which is sin. Right? So what are some what maybe what are some bad fruits that we that we produce sometimes? Okay, what but Give me some examples. Littering. Littering. <laughs> okay. So not taking care of God's creation. Okay. Okay. Calling somebody a bad name. What else? What about um, what about you? One of your you go to a birthday party, and your friend—it's not for you; it's for your friend. But your friend is opening up lots of presents, and you're like, "Man, I wish I had all those presents that my friend is getting right now." What is that? Jealousy, Jealousy and covet, coveting, right? Wanting something that's not yours. Let's see. Or what about when your sibling is bothering you and you've had enough of it and you just explode on them because you're mad and angry, right? That's an example of having bad fruit. Um, can you think of anything else? There's lots of different ways, right? What are some examples of Good fruit in our lives, and where where does the good fruit come from? 
okay, from God? How? How does God give us good food? Because when He changes our heart. He changes our heart? How does God change our heart? With His Spirit. Yes. His Spirit changes our heart. And so when His Spirit changes our heart, we, He gives us good fruit. Okay. In the Bible, it tells us exactly what those fruit are from the Holy Spirit. Can anyone name them? There are eight fruits of the Spirit. Um, heart, no, that's those are organs. <laughs> those are body organs. I'm talking about fruit of the joy, spirit. Joy, goodness, faithful love, love, peace. We've got five. So, all right, we said love, joy, peace, goodness, and we said faithfulness. So, patience. <laughs> Patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So when when the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, He fills us with fills us with good fruit, and we eat fruit, right? So what's the purpose of us having fruit? Someone going to eat us? It's like we're it's like we're taking taking the um we're taking the heart that God's given us. The fruit is for other people to feed on. Right? Why else would we produce fruit? For other people to to see the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control in our lives, and when they feed on that fruit that we produce, they can come to know Jesus, and we can tell them where that fruit came from, and we can say, "I've got some more fruit for you, and here's where you can find it." Right? And so that's what this verse is saying. He's saying. You belong to him who was raised from the dead. Who is him? Jesus, who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for these children. And thank you for all the things they are learning about you. And thank you for your spirit that fills us and gives us good fruit. You prepare our hearts and minds for worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's continue in worship as our young ones find their, their way back to their seats. Our next hymn this morning is hymn 468, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Please stand and sing.
may be seated. Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. 
This morning we are continuing through our study of this letter from Paul. We are beginning a new chapter in our study. We are starting chapter 7 this morning. And I have debated all week whether to read to you the entire chapter every week. Uh, as we've done in the past, we've taken large portions, or I've read the whole section for you, and then focus on, on smaller parts as we go along. But simply for the size and, and the, the depth of Romans 7, we're, we're going to take it in small pieces, in bite-sized chunks, as we make our way through it together. So this morning, I will read to you uh, verses 1 through 6, and this will be the focus of our study this morning. This is what Paul writes. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, come seeking your help. I come seeking your help, Father, for I cannot proclaim your word without it. And we cannot understand it, we cannot believe it, we cannot interpret it, we cannot apply it, we cannot do anything with it without your Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words. Without that same Spirit, without Him working in and through us, opening our eyes and softening our hearts and opening our ears and teaching us what this means. So Father, we pray and we humbly ask for your spirit to move among your people to do just that. To open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts that we may believe, that we may have faith, that we may receive grace, that we may repent of sin, that we may be encouraged, that we may be comforted, and that you above all things may be glorified. Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a general rule, humans have a very hard time with rules. Don't we? And I think it works really one of two ways. We either refuse to be told what to do on anything... You can be the most generous person ever to live and ever to walk the earth, but as soon as someone tells you, you need to be generous, you become the stingiest miser, worse than Ebenezer Scrooge. And so either we, we brush up against those rules and say, you can't tell me what to do, or we 
embrace them as a king. And we do everything in our power to make sure that we don't break even the smallest fraction, that we don't even give the appearance of breaking those rules, because those rules mean everything. We see this problem, this two-faceted problem with of humanity and rules is really, at its core, a problem with humanity and God's law, or God's rules. So we have a problem. We, we have a, an issue, and we see it every day. That God's Word says something, and we as a society, as individuals, even as a church, we either brush up against it and demand it to be changed, demand say that that has to be a different interpretation, that that can't be what Paul actually wrote, that can't be what God actually said, or we embrace it with such that we say that I have to obey this no matter what, and if I don't, I might go to hell if I disobey See, our, our relationship with the law of God is anything but healthy. If you were with us last week, we, we read in Romans 6, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 14, that Paul says, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. And all of us self-rulers, and all of us law keepers, and all of us legalists said, yes, and amen. I no longer have to do what God says. It's not really what Paul means, though, is it? You see, that's, that, that's the focus of Romans 7. If you were to, to take a, an overview, a bird's eye view of Romans 7, and not dive too deep into what Paul is saying, you will see very clearly that Paul is unpacking what this relationship is between God's people and God's law, and how the two mix together and work together, and how they have in the past before Christ, and how they will in the future now that Christ has come. <clears throat> So this morning, as we begin this, this new chapter in Romans, I want to show you from God's Word how God's law has shifted in our relationship because of Christ. Yes, we are no longer under law as Christians. We are under grace, and that's a good thing. But that does not entirely remove God's law from our lives. And so if I could give you sort of a, a main point that I want you to take away this morning from this passage, it's this. We died to the law in the death of Christ. And this happened so that we could be united to Christ in a new relationship. And it is through that new relationship that we can now obey the law of God in Christ. And so to, to help kind of unpack this point a little bit, we're, we're going to walk through these six verses. And first, I, I want to show you a, a general principle that Paul brings out in the first verse. And then in verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us an illustration to sort of explain what he means and how this works. But the primary focus will be, or the majority of our time will be spent on verses 4, 5, and 6. Because it is here that Paul applies this general principle to the lives of Christians. And so it's really simple. That if you're taking notes, if, you're, if you want to break down a road map of where we're heading, it is principle, illustration, and application. Pretty, pretty straightforward message. So first, the principle. What is the, the general principle that Paul gives us in the first verse? Well, it's this. The law is only binding on those who are alive. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really need to be said, does it? But Paul does. And, and he, his, he's making this point because his opponents, from the very beginning of Paul becoming Paul and preaching the gospel in the synagogues around Act, or throughout the book of Acts and around Europe and Asia Minor, 
His opponents have always been accusing Paul of saying, you are encouraging lawlessness in this gospel. You, Paul, a Pharisee, a Jew among Jews, you are going around and preaching a message that says that we don't have to obey what God says. You are encouraging people to live against the things that God has declared. We can read, if you read through the book of Acts, you see this very clearly. It's actually what led to his arrest when he was in Jerusalem in Acts 21. It says there that the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. And so from the very beginning, Paul's greatest opponents from his Jewish brothers and sisters has been you are downgrading and you are downplaying and you are, you are minimizing the importance and the significance of God's law in the lives of God's people. So is this true? Was Paul encouraging Christians to tear down and ignore the law of Moses? Or more particularly, more broadly, the, the law of God? And so here in, in Romans 7 and other letters that he writes, he's defending himself. Or, or put it in a, a better way, he's defending the gospel. By first providing this general principle that we see in verse 1. He says, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. And, and this it has been interpreted in different ways, this phrase of who he's speaking to. It could be Jewish Christians in Rome. It could be uh, Jews in Rome who are not yet Christians. Or it could be a, a mix of the two. And I think, really, we, we should understand this as a mix of the two. Because Romans is written to a church that consists of both Gentiles and Jewish believers. And so it would be really unfortunate for Paul to, to sort of direct his attention at this point only to part of the church. And to say, hey, all you Gentiles out there, just close your ears for a minute, I'm not really talking to you. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's instead speaking to the church. And as a general rule, we, even if, as Gentiles, I believe that we're all Gentiles here, we understand the law. That you were, that there are rules, there are norms, there are things that you and I must obey and must do. Because an authority higher than us says so. And so he's saying very clearly a general principle to those who know the law. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? We see from the start that Paul isn't preaching on overthrow of, of Mosaic law. Rather, he's saying that something has happened in the Christian's life that has shifted and affected their relationship to the law. It's not that the law is being torn down, but it's the way that we relate to the law has changed. We don't cast it aside, but things are different now. And the primary difference, Paul says, is that we have died in Christ. And the law doesn't apply, it's not binding to the dead. And we've, we've been seeing this in Romans 5, how in Christ we've been united with him in his death. That when Christ died on the cross through faith, we also died. That he died and we died and we share in this death. And so what Paul is saying, to put this a, a different way, is that death frees an individual from the obligations and from the requirements and from the duties that any law would be put on them when they were still alive. Because of death, you are freed from the law. Death does not apply, or the law does not apply to the dead. And so to get this 
point across a little bit clearer, Paul gives us an illustration in verses 2 and 3. And the illustration is really quite simple. He says a woman is free to remarry when her husband dies. And let me just give a point of clarity here because of the, the, the baggage that we can bring into Scripture and the, the presuppositions we can bring. This is not a passage. This is not Paul speaking on divorce and remarriage. It's not what he's saying. It's not, not the point. And to, to get lost in those details and to say, well, Paul, what, what about divorce and what about remarriage? How does this work? If we're, if we're chasing that trail, we miss what Paul is saying. It's like going on a bear hunt and getting caught chasing rabbits. Like, it's not what we're here for. We're after bigger game. So Paul says that, according to the law, if a married woman goes and she lives with another man who is not her husband, she's committing adultery. She's violating, she's breaking the law of God. But if her husband dies, then that same action, living with another man, is no longer a violation. Because death, the death of her husband, has freed her from the law of marriage. And it's the same action being done. But because of the death of her husband, she is freed from the obligations of the law before he dies. And you'll notice kind of where Paul is going here. He begins verse 4 with likewise. Likewise, he says. See, he's moving from this general principle and this illustration to, to get to his main point. And so he says, just as a married woman is freed from the marital laws because of the death of her husband, so you, Christian, are freed from the law through your death in Christ. That's it. That's the point Paul is making here in these first few verses of Romans 7. You have died in Christ, and because you have died in Christ, your obligations to the law of God are done. They've been satisfied, they've been met, they've been done away with because you have died in Christ. And the law is only binding on those who are alive. So let me give you then two applications from this that Paul gives us. As I said, we're spending the majority of our time this morning on these applications. Let me give you two. First, we died to the law so that we could be united to Christ. We died to the law so that we could be united to Christ. Paul shows us very clearly why this death to the law is necessary. And we'll hit this briefly today, but we'll hit it more in depth next week because it's a complicated issue. It's deep. But you see, at the heart of all of it, at the heart of, of chapter 7, is really whether or not the law of God is good. If you, if you look at verse 5, this is what Paul says. He, he, he says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul uses this phrase, in the flesh. He uses it often throughout his, his letters, and he uses it to refer to our spiritual inability to obey God. And our spiritual inability to be righteous as God requires us to be righteous. When we are in the flesh, we cannot do anything that pleases God. We cannot do anything that satisfies the requirements of the law. We cannot be righteous in the flesh. Because our flesh is broken. And so what Paul is saying here in verse 5 is that before Christ, when you and I were in, when we were in the flesh, when we were lost in sin, when we were dead in the spirit, 
the law worked in a perilous way for us. Again, we'll, we'll talk about it more next week, but just jump down a few verses to, to verses 7 and 8. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And then skip down to to verse 10. Paul says, The very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me. So so track, track with me here. Track with Paul, what Paul is saying. God gives the law to Israel. He gives it through Moses. He gives it to humanity, to his people, more specifically, but really broadly to to the world. Here it is. This is what God requires of you. You want eternal life? You want to be be in right standing with God? Follow this law. But the problem is, is that we lack the ability to do it. And so rather than the law creating in us righteousness, it actually creates in us sin and sort of stimulates sin in us. And the law and sin, instead of the law correcting sin, the law now works with sin, and these two become sort of partners in crime, as it were. The law by itself is good. It is given by God, and it reveals His holiness. It reveals the standard of righteousness. But because of my sin, the law cannot produce holiness. And instead, the law, when it is met with my sin, instead produces more sin, and more sin, and more death. So Paul says in, in the verses I just read, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was if the law said, don't covet. But because the law said, thou shalt not covet, my heart grabbed hold of this law and began creating all forms of covetous desires that weren't even there before. And we see it all the time. And this, this is not a complicated matter because if you've ever been around young children, you know this to be true. I mean, just mom, mom takes their child around and says, look, don't touch this. I'm putting this here on the counter. Do not touch this. And now for the next three and a half hours, that child can only think about one thing, this. And how badly I want to touch this. If mom never says it, the child probably doesn't even recognize it. Doesn't even see it. Doesn't even know it's there. Certainly has no desire to touch it. Because mom says, don't touch it. I got it. That's what Paul's getting at. Because the law says don't covet, I covet. Because the law says don't lie, I lie. Because the law says don't do this, I want to do that. Because my sin works in me and works with the law... And now, all of a sudden, the only thing I am capable of doing is breaking and violating what God has told me not to do. Now, it's not the law's fault. The law remains good. Yet, when the law partners with sin, the only fruit that results is death. You see, the law not only failed to deal with sin, but it actually stimulated sin inside of me. And this is why works righteousness trying to work my way to please God, trying to obey and do what God says to make Him happy with me. 
This is why works righteousness and legalism and all the other names that we want to put on it, this is why it's so deadly. Because if I believe that in order to get right with God, that I have to do certain things, and I have to avoid certain sins, and I have to spend my life trying my best to fix myself by doing what God commands, then I am doomed before I ever take one foot outside the door. Because the more and more I try to obey, the more and more I work for righteousness, the farther and farther from it I become. To make matters worse, there's nothing that I can do on my own power to free myself from this deadly path of legalistic obedience. I'm trapped. So it is very much Paul's analogy and his illustration of, of this married woman waiting to be freed from her marital laws through death. This is a perfect illustration. Because my relationship with the law cannot be broken any other way. It is very much a relationship that can only be broken by death. And so in order to be free from this deadly relationship to the law, death must take place. That is the only way that anyone can be freed from it. Now, the good news is that we have died in Christ. And Paul spent already much of this letter showing us this and proving this to us. Showing this union that we share in Christ through faith. And that when we believe the promises of God through Christ, we die with Jesus on the cross. And we are therefore in, therefore in that moment freed from the law is exactly what Paul gets at in verse 4. He says, likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. By sharing in and participating with Jesus in his death, we have died to the law and its obligations, its rule, its dominion over us has ended. But why? Why does this happen? What is the purpose that Paul gives us? Because you see, being freed from the law doesn't mean that we are neutral, sort of floating around in empty space, untethered to anyone or anything. Yes, we are freed from the law. But we are freed from the law so that we can be united to something, or, or rather someone, far greater than the law ever was. Paul continues in verse 4. Look there, he says, You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why has this happened, he says? So that you may belong to another marriage language that Paul uses. Belonging to someone else. Being part, being united with someone. He uses it in verses 2 and 3 with his illustration, and he uses it again here in verse 4. And it's so fitting. Because he says, you are bound to the law through a covenant relationship. One that you could not break except through death. This marriage-like relationship. But the problem was that the law was a bad husband to you. And you couldn't break it. You couldn't get away. And, and everything you tried to do, tried to please, tried to satisfy, didn't work. And so before you can be united with Jesus in a covenant-like covenant relationship, in a marriage-like relationship, before that can happen, your old covenant relationship must end. And the only way that ends is through death. And so we have to die. And in Christ we have to. And now that we are freed from that first relationship through death, we can now be united in this new covenant relationship with Jesus. 
The best part about this new union, the best part about this new covenant, is that where death ended the first one, death cannot end the second one. Because notice to whom Paul says we belong. So that we may belong to another. Who? To him who has been raised from the dead. Which means that death cannot break this relationship. Death cannot break this union. Because he's already broken death. This is a union. This is a relationship that lasts forever. There is no till death do us part in these vows. This is a for all eternity vow. Whereas Jesus promised his disciples, for I am with you always. So that's the, the first application of this. We died to the law so that we could be united to Christ. But what does this mean in terms of our relationship to that law? That's the second application. The second application of this is now, because of this new union, we obey the law from righteousness, not for righteousness. We obey the law from righteousness, not for righteousness. You see, the reason why the law fails to deal with sin is that the law begins on the outside and attempts to conform us inwardly. <coughs> And so when the law says, do not lie, that is an action that is outside a person. It is something that we must avoid doing. No matter how much I try, I can't change my heart. And if there is lying and deceit and darkness within my heart, then no amount of effort from the outside will ever be able to penetrate the darkness within. It can't be done. And so this outside-in approach fails every time. Thankfully, this new union, this new covenant relationship with this new husband, Christ, is different. And it approaches obedience not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Paul helps us out with this as well. Go back to the end of verse 4. He says, he said that we, we died to the law so that we could belong to the one who's been raised from the dead. Why has this happened? in order that we may bear fruit for God. And then jump down to verse 6. But now, that is, in this new union with Christ that we have, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Here's what that means. You are freed from the law by dying with Christ, and being united with Him. But the law remains good, and good for you, and it produces good fruit in you, and for you, and through you, and from you, fruit that honors and glorifies God. And that fruit is produced by obeying the law, but we obey it differently. Because you may be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought, I thought you just said we didn't have to worry about the law. We died to it, so why are you bringing this back into our lives again? It's different now. Think of the law like a mountain. It's massive. It's heavy. It's much bigger than we could ever imagine. Before Christ, before faith in Christ, before salvation, before grace and mercy came to you, that mountain of God's law hung over you. 
And I don't mean you stood next to it or kind of were afraid that it might fall over on you. I mean it hung over your head as big as a mountain. There's no amount of effort that could get out from under it. There's no amount of effort that can hold it up for long. There's no amount of effort that's going to keep this mountain from crushing you. Because there it hangs forever. Or so it seems. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can go. Nowhere you can go. Every, everywhere you went, everything you did, every thought you thunk, every, the mountain never leaves you. It never gives you a break. It never gives you just even a moment's respite. It's just there. And you feel it. And you feel the pressure and the burden just praying that today is not the day that it finally drops. After dying with Christ, through this new union with Christ, that mountain has dropped, but not on you. It's dropped on Him. And there on the cross of Christ, the mountain that hung over your head for so long fell with the full force of God's wrath on Jesus. And now that the mountain has fallen and it has dropped, instead of standing underneath it, We now stand on top of it. And if you've ever climbed a mountain and stood and looked out at the view, there's there's something joyous and and awe-inspiring of standing on top of a mountain and the views in which you can, can receive. And as Christians, we stand there at the top of this mountain and we view these creation beauties knowing who is responsible for them. You cannot stand on top of a mountain without a, a sense of worship and devotion dwelling up within you. And so if the law is this mountain, now that it is dropped, we can now stand on the same mountain. And this mountain is now a source of joy and happiness and peace and devotion and love. Because now it's no longer hanging over us ready to crush us, but it's already dropped. The mountain hasn't changed. But where you stand in relation to that mountain has. Let me put it another way are lost in mountain analogies. We obey God because God has already accepted us. Not because we are hoping He one day will. It is only because we are united with Christ that our obedience to the law can now fulfill the law's purpose in growing righteousness and producing holiness in us. You see, we grow in righteousness through obedience to the law because we've already been declared righteous in Christ. I don't have to work for God's pleasure. I don't have to try and make God smile at me. I don't have to prove myself worthy of Him or try to make Him happy so that I will have a good day because I already have His approval in Jesus. And now what used to stimulate sin in me because of Jesus now stimulates holiness. How does that happen? Because God has given me His Spirit to enable me and to empower me to produce God-honoring and God-glorifying fruit by obeying His law in the Spirit and not in the letter of the written code. You have died to the law, and this means that you are now united to Christ in a new relationship, and through that relationship, you obey the law, which brings fruits of righteousness 
to you and through you and from you and produces in you holiness and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. That's the primary thing that Paul's saying. That's his, that's his primary point. Your relationship to the law has changed because you died to it. Which means a couple things for us. You can't earn God's pleasure. can't be done. You can try, but you will fail. And you will be discouraged. And you will be hurt. And you will feel defeated. Because no matter what you do, you will never satisfy the law. But it's already been satisfied for you. As we, as we land the plane here, let me, let me leave you with an illustration that I think will sort of drive the point home a little more clearly. It's one that, that Sinclair Ferguson and I have learned from him, and it's, it means, I think it's helpful. Because it's this, this truth that we have died to the law, we have this new relationship with Christ, that really is a, a beautiful truth that I don't think we, we get too often. Imagine, and, and I say imagine, because some of you will have to imagine this, but some of you here won't, because you've lived this, and you know it well, and you don't have to use your imagination to, to think about But imagine, imagine a young woman who falls in love with a young man, and their courtship and their engagement are wonderful, things go smoothly and quickly, their wedding day comes and goes. Within that first year of marriage, this young woman realizes for the very first time that she has married a monster. That he is nothing like he was when they were dating. That he is nothing like she thought he was. But instead, he's abusive. He's verbally abusive. He assaults her. He belittles her. He shames her. He's violent. He's angry. He is set off at a moment's notice. The slightest misstep, the slightest broken plate, the slightest overcooked chicken, the slightest anything sends him off into a rage that is unmatched and unparalleled and unimaginable. But she loves her husband despite the fact that he's a monster. And so she does everything she can to please him. She knows what he likes and so she does everything and she spares no end and no effort. She does everything she can every single day to make sure that when he walks in the door from work, the dinner is on the table, the kids are quiet in the rooms, everything is just to his liking, just in the hopes that one day he might turn to her and say, good job. And then she spills his drink, or she drops his plate of food, or she hits something the wrong way. And his rage comes bursting forth and nothing Nothing stops it. And so here this woman sits, trapped in this marriage, trying her hardest, but nothing works. And then one day, he dies. And while she mourns the loss of her husband, at the same time, she knows that she is finally free from his wrath. 
Not long after that, she meets another man. He is the complete opposite of her first husband. He is kind. He is gentle. He is loving. He is serving. He is encouraging. He is humble. And he knows that she's been hurt more than anyone can fathom. He sees the scars. But he loves her in such a way that those scars become smaller as every day passes. He proposes, and the day of their wedding arrives, and there she stands at the back of the church. Those doors open, and she there in her white dress with her veil covering her face walks the aisle and sees there at the altar this groom. This man who loves her the way that she's always wanted to be loved. The way that she's always needed to be loved. And as he lifts her her veil, you can see the tears just streaming down her face. Tears of both joy and sorrow mixed together. Sorrow for her past. Sorrow for her pain and the hurts from her first husband. And yet joy because he is gone and this new husband is nothing like him. She knows that being a wife to this new husband will be nothing like it was to the last. That she will serve him and she will love him and it will not be a burden. It will not be a a source of fear or dread, but it will be a source of blessing and honor and joy and privilege. That he, to be married to him, will be a blessing to her. And that to be his wife will be a source of joy. So at this wedding, the preacher then turns to the groom and says to him, Will you take this woman with all of her scars and with all of her pain and with all of her past, with all of her failures and with all of her baggage and with everything that she has with her, will you take her to be yours from this day forth and forevermore? The groom looks down at his bride and boldly and gently and lovingly says to her, I will. Preacher then turns to this woman and says, Will you have this man who knows your past, who knows your hurts, who knows all of your failures, and yet loves you still? Will you take him to be yours forever? To belong to him forever? To serve him forever? Loved ones, that first husband in this story, that's the one. He is the one who beats you down who reminds you daily that there is nothing you do that will ever be good enough. No amount of effort, no amount of planning, no amount of of striving in obedience will ever be enough. And instead, it's going to beat you down over and over and over again, reminding every single day of each and every one of your failures. And you will end this relationship in agony. Because nothing I ever do This first husband, he is this law husband, he is unforgiving, he is merciless, his wrath knows no end. But this new groom, this new man, that's Jesus. He is kind, he is gentle, he is loving, he is gracious, he is he is everything that the law is not. He sees your failures. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't sweep them under the rug. He sees your failures and loves you still. And the point that Paul is making here in Romans 7 is your first husband has died. 
you are free. And now you are free so that you can be united to this second one, to this better one, to this loving man who will give everything of himself for you and to you. So for most of us here this morning, you have been in that bride's shoes. You've walked that aisle. You've lifted the veil. You've said those vows. You've entered into this beautiful union relationship with this new husband, this new groom, Christ. But maybe this morning, those vows need to be renewed. To come back to your groom and say, lately it's been more burdensome than blessing to serve you, to love you, to be loved by you. I've run from you. I've avoided you. I've, I've sinned against you. And I know that our union, our relationship hasn't changed, but I just want to be reminded of the relationship that we have. The vows that we shared. The, the promises you have made to me. So maybe that's what some of us need to do this morning. For others, maybe you've never been down that aisle, so to speak. You're still trapped in that first marriage. You're still trying to work your way through it. To please and to please and to please a husband who will never be pleased. You're still trying to work your way to a better life, to fix things, to make yourself a better person, to make things more livable. To you, let me say to you, there is a better husband for you than the law. He is standing at the altar. He is calling you down the aisle to himself. And the Father is there at the back ready to walk you down the aisle and present you to this new groom to lift your veil and to be glorified in this beautiful union. So in a very real sense, the preacher is saying to you this morning, will you take this man? Will you belong to him forever? Forgetting that first husband and loving this one who has loved you so well. Pray with me. Father, forgive us for trying to obey and trying to earn our place. We can never do it. But we don't have to worry about that anymore. Because you have earned a place for us. Through Jesus. You have brought us to yourself through his work, through his perfection, through his righteousness, through all that he is and has done. And on no account of us. And Father, you have promised that it is by faith that we receive this new life. It is by faith that we receive these promises. It is by faith they are applied to us and that you declare us righteous. And so if it is by faith that these things happen, Father, help us to believe. us to cry out to you, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to be reminded every day that our old husband has died. The law has died. And that we are now wedded to a new man. The one who is loving and kind. Forgives us sees all of our faults and loves us still. <coughs> Help us to come to him, to come to you, Jesus. 
Christ's name we pray. Well, here at Bear Creek, uh, we respond to the preaching of God's Word uh, in a couple of ways. First, and primarily through taking communion together. Second, we sing hymns together. And so if you're here this morning and you're a believer, uh, Ron is at the back if you need the elements. He, he will provide them for you to raise your hand. Um, if you are a believer in Christ, you may or may not be a member of this church. For now, that's not my concern. I would love to talk to you about being a member and what that looks like. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, faith has been placed in Christ. The old husband to the law has died and you are wedded and united to this new groom in Jesus. And you are welcome at this table with us. Not because I have brought you or or declared that it's so, but because Christ has brought you to his table. And as I often say here, I'm not going to be the one to stand in the way of that. Christians, you're welcome at this table. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're still dealing with that first husband, trying to earn your place and to earn your keep and to make God happy with you by doing good things for him. Then really, if I'm being completely honest with you, this does nothing for you. It's a picture. It's a picture, and I would rather you have the real thing. Let that first husband die and come to Jesus. Be forgiven, be redeemed, be loved. Christian, as you and I come to this table, we come first to the bread. And in this bread, we are reminded of all that this husband, this new man has done for us. To rescue us from works righteousness. To rescue us from that abusive law. To free us from him. He has died and we have died with him through faith. Never forget what he has done. The body of Christ broken for you. Then we come to the cup. The day is coming, church. When the king will return. And he will conquer and finally defeat all of his enemies. He will remove sickness. He will redeem his creation. And he will make all things as they were always meant to be. And after all of this takes place, the very first thing we will do in this new heavens and in this new earth, the very first thing that we will do as the people of God to celebrate this, is go to a wedding. And at this wedding... The groom, Christ, will be standing there at the altar. And the bride will be his bride, his church. Each and every one of us who believe. And there on that day, despite all of our failures in this life, despite all of our brokenness, despite all of our pain and our scars, we will be clothed white because of what he has done in forgiving us and cleansing us. And we will be blameless and pure. And we will be presented to him, to be united to him forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King. Our final hymn this morning is hymn 348, Softly and Tenderly. I ask you to stand and sing with us.
printed there is the Great Commission. As we leave here, we, we leave here saying this aloud together as the body of Christ because this is what Christ has commanded us. To go and find people and bring them to this new husband. To be united to him forever. So I invite you, church, to say the Great Commission aloud with me. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.